Sciences Po. The blessing of being a professor is that your students always have the same age. You are living with those who represent precisely that future that gives me so much hope. What Keeps You Up at Night is a podcast produced by the Sciences Po Journalism School and the Paris School of International Affairs. Here, we bring you personal stories from political leaders around the world. How do they balance their responsibilities? How do they deal with their doubts? And how do they manage their priorities? With those questions in mind, we want to dive into the hopes and dilemmas that come with being in charge. I am Morgan Annex. And I am Lola Lopez. And this is What Keeps You Up at Night. Suleiman Bashir Diagne, you are a Senegalese philosopher and an internationally recognized thinker. Among others, you teach at Columbia University in the United States. Your field of research includes Islamic, African and mathematical philosophy. You advocate a decolonial approach to philosophy, challenging purely Eurocentric theories of knowledge and pushing to integrate diverse perspectives from different cultures and traditions that transcend borders. You speak seven languages and have worked around the value of translation, defining it as the language of all languages and a means to create reciprocity beyond colonial asymmetries. One of your most recent projects is the Programme Sud, an initiative which brings together universities in Senegal, South Africa and France and promotes mutual exchange for a variety of academic projects. Welcome to our studios at Sciences Po Journalism School. Thank you very much for having me. Suleiman Bashardian, what does a normal night look like for you? Is it a time where you come down after a long day or, on the contrary, a moment for you to continue working, writing, thinking? When I go back home in the evening, it's usually very tired. It means I spend the whole day uh, in my office. If I'm not teaching, I would be still in my office trying to have some work done. And so when I go back home, the only thing I can do immediately before uh, dinner is something very stupid, which is watching television and hoping that I have a good football match uh, on, on, on television. But the night means also for me waking up very early when it is still night and I'm well rested because I go to bed early enough. And that is the moment I prefer where I can work. When the night is still there, the day is announcing itself and I get some work done, and that is the best time for me. That is a typical weekday night. If it is a Saturday night, then if I'm in New York, I love to go listen to some jazz. And do you ever experience insomnia? Could you recount to us your last experience of it and what decision may have triggered it? Unfortunately, I experience insomnia a lot. And uh, usually what triggers insomnia is when I have my to-do list just, uh, you know, growing and growing. I check out stuff and I add stuff because I keep receiving emails. So I could wake up at night and asking myself, how am I going to do this? I try to shut down my mind. It doesn't work. So what I do in those circumstances, trying not to wake up my wife next to me, 
is uh, read a detective story. Precisely what kind of decisions is it that you're bound to take as a philosopher that may keep you up at night? It depends. As a philosopher, I decide on the direction that my thinking is going to take. Let's say, for example, right now, I just finished teaching a seminar on universalism. And I decided, I have decided now that I'm going to turn that into a book. How is it going to work? How are you going to do this? What time frame? Who are you going to talk to uh, about publishing it, etc., etc.? Those are the usual academic decisions that you make. I happen to be also a director of uh, an institute, an institute of African studies, meaning that I have administrative decisions to make. And since we are at Sciences Po, let's talk politics. I used to be the advisor of uh, Senegalese President Abdou Youf. And having been his advisor, that is the time when I realized what it really meant to make decisions that are quite consequential. I am glad to have convinced the president, but he did not need much convincing, he was already convinced by that, to, uh, to create in, uh, in our country, Senegal, a Biennale of Arts, which is now very successful. This was in the 1990s, and until now we have this wonderful Biennale of Arts uh, happening in Senegal. Another decision I contributed to was the opening of the second university in Senegal, uh, University Gaston Berger in Saint-Louis, my hometown. So I am very proud of uh, the role I played in uh, those decisions and I can see the results until now. And this doesn't happen very often because philosophers uh, agitate ideas that remain just that, ideas. And is there a place you go to in order to clear your mind or to find peace before taking that sort of decision, any activity that, that helps you? When I am in Senegal or when I am in New York and it is uh, summer, I go to the beach. Actually, swimming is something that helps me relax and, uh, and process ideas that I have in order to make the, the, the right decision. I do that also when I swim in the swimming pool at uh, Columbia University. You've mentioned your life in Senegal, in, in the US. Is there one place that you call home? Dakar is home because physically I have built a house there. Paris is home. I like to say that uh, I turned 18 in Paris, and that's very meaningful because turning 18 is some uh, quite a milestone in one's in one's life. And like right now, I am living again in Paris and just putting my steps in the steps of my former self. Uh, many years ago, walking around Quartier Latin is really uh, a blessing for me. So when I walk in the streets of Cartier in particular, I do have the feeling that I'm home. Do you feel different depending on, on where you are? Is your identity and thinking influenced by your location in any way? I would say yes, but it goes through the language of that location. In other words, when I'm in, in, in Paris, obviously, I live in my French uh, language. When I'm in New York, I live uh, in the English language. I, I teach most of the time in English. And when I'm in, in Senegal, I am uh, in my Wolof language. 
So this decentering, that is uh, uh, the true meaning of thinking from a language to another language. And what I understand by that is the capacity that moving from a language to another language gives you the capacity to decenter yourself, to be able to look at your own language from the standpoint of another language. And this is why living on these three different continents, actually, living in New York, coming quite often to Paris and going to Dakar and being from Dakar also is, is very important for me. Is there any of the languages that you speak that feel more personal or more intimate? I would say that I can decide between Wolof and French. And I would say that both are intimate languages to me. First of all, these are languages that I shared with my parents. My parents spoke to me ever since I was born in both languages. So I, and I, I acquired those languages almost at the same time. And uh, French is the language, my working language most of the time, uh, the language in which I enjoy poetry the ling language in which I can make more easily all kind of puns that I imagine doing. So yes, I have that very intimate relationship to the to the French uh, to the French language for that reason. And Wolof because it is the language that I share with my people, my Senegalese people, obviously. In what language do you dream then? All three, and sometimes even uh, all four if I add Arabic, because I have to Arabic the same relationship that I have to Latin. For me, it is more a written language, uh, which I use and understand certain precise settings, philosophical texts, for example, and liturgical use of Arabic. But yes, I can, I can dream in that, in that language as well. You're listening to What Keeps You Up at Night with Suleiman Bashir Diagne. How do you know it's time to let go of a thought, an idea? Precisely, that's the answer I can't give myself. And I really should uh, let go of those because normally I could say, okay, I finished using this notebook in which I have taken all my notes connected to the topic of universalism. Here is the book now, the manuscript, you sent it to your publisher. Uh, so you can get rid of your draft copies and you can get rid of your notebook. But the notebook is kind of sacralized. I, I remember the moments when I had this idea that I thought brilliant. I might renounce it and finding it not so brilliant after all. But uh, for any single word that I traced, I have a particular uh, moment of my life that is connected to it. Then will you say, are you also a forward-looking person? I do. I am, uh, in that sense, uh, a disciple of this Franco-Senegalese philosopher named Gaston Berger, who is not very well known today, but people may know that he is the so-called father of foresight and prospective thinking. And I have uh, really appropriated this notion of him that one should leave uh, making anticipation, looking at the future, imagining it, and acting in relation to that imagined future. In other words, the principles of our actions, what dictates our actions today, is not the past, but the future that we wish. And I think that this uh, 
prospective attitude is something that I have really incorporated. If you are future oriented like that, it means that you pay more attention to the uh, to the changes that are appearing in the present from which could stem a more desirable future. And this helps you cope with the present state of things. And I think this is also the basis for optimism. Being able to see beyond the current state of things by deciphering the signs of a possible change and acting on those signs. In other words, and this is what makes prospective a science of, of action and not just of contemplation. And as we come to our last question, is there something that gives you hope today that what makes you dream? Well, of course, we live in a time that is quite somber, I would say. And uh, there are so many reasons to get discouraged when we look at the world as it is. Democracy, the fact that democracy is very in very bad shape and that uh, uh, autocratic regimes are uh, everywhere. And if I go back to my own West African region, uh, obviously the fact that three to four countries in West Africa have undergone coup. And we thought that these military regimes were things of the past, and obviously they are not. But at the same time, when I look at uh, the youth, being united today, the way it is united, uh, to address one of the most urgent issues of our time, which is the environment. Yes, you look at the issue itself and you feel bad because we are destroying our planet. And at the same time, when you see kids, youth, the youth coming together from different areas, this gives you hope in the capacity of humanity precisely act as humanity. In other words, not as separated nation states uh, looking more at their own interests and uh, being totally egocentric as, uh, as usual. But the youth, it seems to me, is inventing the notion of a humanity as a political agent. Humanity as such. Humanity uh, demanding rights for our environment, humanity demanding the right to have a planet that we understand we should be sharing with all the living beings, etc. That is what gives me hope. And I'm very happy with, with my own job as a professor because the blessing of being a professor is that your students always have the same age. No matter how old you get, which is my case now, you are living with those who represent precisely that future that gives me so much hope. Suleiman Bashir Diagne, thank you so much for having shared your insights with us. And to our listeners, thank you for being with us. We hope you'll join us next time. If you've liked this episode, feel free to leave us a comment and a five-star rating. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to access all new episodes. Until then, take care and sleep well.